We can also look, so the way I simplified the model was to say, we analyze and ideate on the front end of innovation. And we plan and we build on the back end of innovation. And I love the quote from Aristotle that says, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And I started Innovation Savvy. The etymology of savvy is to be wise. And I think when we know ourselves and we, when we know others and we can really lean into our strengths when it's necessary, but then invite others to lean into theirs, it's like a symphony. My strength shouldn't be leading in the back end of innovation, nor should yours, because you and I, I we discovered within the hour of coming on to this session that we're clones. We solve problems in a very similar way. Now, there's some unique differences in this as well. Um, but that understanding of ourselves and others gives us, I think, a greater capability to both trust ourselves, but then know um, how to effectively utilize other people's strengths when our natural strengths aren't appropriate, rather than draining our energy by trying to work outside of our strengths creativity. You know, that's what we really want to unleash in people um, is what is their particular way of being creative, of innovating. And it's not the same for everybody. It really is um, different. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where we host conversations about the things that nerd us out with one goal in mind, sharing best practices and sharing techniques and tools that allow us to make lasting change. In each episode, we'll feature a different idea and hopefully through that episode, give you a set of new tools, new skills, and new thinking that'll allow you to change how you do your work, how you lead others, and how you show up in your life. We're so excited that you've chosen to nerd out with us. We hope that these episodes are exactly the things that you need to hear in order to get started in making the improvements that you want to see happen in the world. If these episodes speak to you, please subscribe to our podcast, like what we're doing, and leave a comment. We each individually are hardwired on a spectrum from chaos to order. So on one end, there's like destructive chaos. On the other hand, or often the other end of the far ring that is stifling control. Now those two rings in the middle, they're both really positives. So I think of it as creative chaos and constructive order. Margaret Mead said it best when she shared that one should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that it was the only thing that ever had. I couldn't agree more. Let's get busy, Improvement Nerds. We've got a lot of work to do. Hey, Improvement Nerds. This is Tom. Welcome back to another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Lori Levins. I wanted to welcome her to the show. Uh, Before I do that, I want to talk quickly how Lori and I got connected. Uh, It was at Butler University. I went to an all-day innovation experience. And in this, you got to kind of pick from a couple of breakout sessions that you wanted to attend. And hers 
was like a 90 minute session or so. So in every other session was like 30 minutes. But I made the decision. I wanted to see this presentation. I wanted to learn more about this technique and how it was being used to help organizations and individuals understand how they perceive the world and risk. So I went to her session and it was the best 90 minutes I could have ever spent. And afterwards I made sure I got to know her and stay connected with her. And that, that was about two years ago. And th thinking like this and tools like this, like you never lose track of. And once I started this podcast, you know, it just dawned on me. I'm like, there's Lori Levins and there's an amazing presentation she gave and I need to spotlight that. So I reached out to her and convinced her to say yes, she did. And she's here today. So I'm excited to everyone to introduce you to Lori Levins. Lori, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Tom. I'm happy to be here with you. Great. So um, I want you to just kind of give us a peek under the hood about who you are and uh, what, what you're up to. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your business and uh, some of the things that you get nerdy about. <laughs> um, I love that question. What do you get nerdy about? Uh, I am so nerdy about people and people is what I do in my work. So I take a different approach to innovation than the vast majority of people out there. Um, I think there's so much focus on strategy and technology and process. And what I'm really excited about is the people side of it. How are people wired? Why do we do what we do? What matters to us? What drives us? Um, and you and I have talked in the past, like I love um, assessment tools that give us insights to people. So whether it's Myers-Briggs and the fact that I'm an intuitive feeler, um, that means that I, I care about people. I'm a champion and a healer of people, um, as David Kiersey's work builds on Myers and Briggs. And so I use that passion that I have for people um, within the innovation space. So it's really helping um leaders and teams understand themselves better, to trust themselves, and to collaborate more effectively, because very little innovation happens in this world without true collaboration. Exactly. And I think in your presentation, it was a, a conference on innovation, and a big focus was on um, design thinking was probably one of the, the bigger talking points of the whole conference, but so was innovation and risk risk profiles or risk taking and how trust was an important part of the equation that no one's got any motivation to change unless first there's a clear case or a vision that helps them understand where they're going next, but also that there's leadership that creates that safety to say, you, you, it's worth going to. And even if we don't get there, there will be no harm that occurs as a result of trying. And I think that was a big piece of that conference and, and innovation in general is if there's no safety, if there's no um, trust that exists, innovation isn't, isn't going to happen. That's so true. And I think about kind of a simplified Maslow's hierarchy, where really we do need that psychological safety as a foundational 
support. And then um, Kathy Colby's work that I use, um, the assessment tool of Colby, she talks about her definition of freedom is, you know, the ability to be yourself. But then I think on top of that, uh, at the top of that pyramid, so you go from safety to freedom, at the top of that is then your creative power. Unless we have that psychological safety as a foundation, and then we are empowered to take action in the way that's unique to us, according to how we're hardwired and our strengths, then we need that to then be in our true creative power individually and collectively. I think that's so well said is it's all of these things creating the environment to where individuals can realize that full potential and by being them more whole and complete selves and learning to trust themselves first, you know, they're in a position where they're able to work better together. And I think when you bring teams together, that's the power of them is it's not just one idea, but it's the compounding effect of multiple ideas coming together and they can really elevate something that, you know, would have solved the problem, but probably only scratched the surface of it. And I think through treating improvement like a team sport and getting everyone involved, your solutions are going to be more dynamic, more robust, and more durable because they've been thought out from a lot of different perspectives. And I'm so glad you mentioned design thinking, because one of the most important things that design thinking does is it reminds us continuously are we solving for the right problem and not just you know solving the problem right but are we solving for the right problem and when I look at the failure rates of startups and new product launches of 70 to 90 percent and the 70 percent failure rate for change initiatives those numbers haven't changed for decades We've got 52% of employees not engaged, 13% actively disengaged, and those are Gallup numbers from February of this year. So pre-COVID, that was the engagement levels that we were facing in organizations, and those were actually um, the highest that had been reported in years. 80% of workers say they feel stress on the job. Nearly half say they need help managing stress, right? Again, those are pre-pandemic numbers. So now we're in this world where we're facing unprecedented disruption and uncertainty. You know, people are distracted. They're distanced from one another. They're distressed. Um... And so we've got all these different factors that are really creating both a need, the paradox of a need for greater innovation and really lower creative but, um, work right now because of all of this stress. So I think that really creates the conditions where we have to step back and say what we're doing wasn't working across the board anyway. We have a heightened need for innovation and we have a heightened need to help people thrive. And that's where I think um, really the work that I do can have an impact for people individually and then with teams. I'm Give me a second to just like pick my chin up off my desk. That is 
something I think people have to understand is that before this crisis was among us, there was a crisis otherwise occurring, and it was around people's relationship with work. And there is some things that going forward we want to take with us and that they were valuable and they'll be valuable in the future. But there's some other things that maybe we need to just let set in our past and learn from them and choose to go forward. And I think um, some of the statistics you provided was that we have to accept that the work we were doing and the jobs that we were in, in some cases, weren't really an extension of ourselves. And they were just a role or something that we did because we felt that we had to. And um, that can drain people's batteries, right? So, you know, coming out of this, we do have an opportunity to, to be advocates in some ways to say, here's how we can make work look different going forward. And the, I think just the canvas that exists now to innovate and create is an open door. It's pretty inviting. And I think we had to do innovation before it was necessary, but now it's essential. If, if organizations aren't thinking about how they move forward from this and how do they embrace new thinking and encourage risk-taking and give people the space they need to feel safe to experiment and to connect with each other, those organizations are not really gonna mature or grow or be potentially as good as they could have been um, you know, in, in the wake of all this. So I think in some, some regards, this could be a complete rebirth and the start of a new uh, revolution. I agree. And it has to start, I believe, with people. Um, we keep improving strategy, technology, especially, right? All these technologies that are available for collaboration. But you also mentioned how so often when we're, we're in jobs or in roles um, that aren't necessarily a great fit for us. In my first career out of college, I was in litigation consulting. A hundred percent of that work was focused on the past. It was very detail-oriented. It was very analytical. It was about process. I am absolutely wired to look at the future, to look at possibilities, to, uh, you know, to distill and synthesize information, but not to go into the deep detail analytical um, work. And so uh, the big opening for me and why I do the work I do now is when I was hired into Gatorade, um, the, I worked for a leader named Sue Wellington and she hired me. She's really, I think, the leader behind making Gatorade the iconic brand that it is today. It was back in the era of Michael Jordan and the last dance that's been, you know, featured on ESPN here recently. Um, but when she hired me, she said, look, I need you to take this job, um, this marketing manager job in the field um, for right now. But after two years of seeing me, I felt like she got me in a way that nobody ever had in my career. And she actually created a role specifically for me in package innovation. And <clears throat> between the role being defined in a way that used my strengths and then the people around me and the processes filled my blind spots. Um, I don't think of them as weaknesses, but they're blind spots because I have a certain um, toolkit of strengths, but then 
I have blind spots that are a natural counterpoint to my strengths. And I feel like the work that I do now was birthed out of that because I can now use data-driven, human-centered insights that she instinctively, intuitively understood and got about me and created a role that didn't exist before that utilized my strength. We now have data that can help us do that. Um, So I feel like there is, like the stress, there's so much pain. We judge ourselves. We judge others for how we do things. We do things because of how we were taught or what was expected of us as kids or in roles that we've been in. Um, and all of that is, it's an inefficient use of our time and energy, and it's not going to get us to the the creative power and the potential for collaboration. And I love the quote from Aristotle that says, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And I started Innovation Savvy. The etymology of savvy is to be wise. And I think when we know ourselves and we, when we know others and we can really lean into our strengths when it's necessary, but then invite others to lean into theirs. It's like a symphony. Um, Everybody plays their own instrument. And so we need different instruments leading at different times. My strength shouldn't be leading in the back end of innovation, nor should yours, because you and I, I, we discovered within the hour of coming on to this session that we're clones. We solve problems in a very similar way. Now, there's some unique differences in this as well. Um, But that understanding of ourselves and others gives us, I think, a greater capability to both trust ourselves, but then know um, how to effectively utilize other people's strengths when our natural strengths aren't appropriate, rather than draining our energy by trying to work outside of our strengths zone. I think you built a great case for self-discovery. You know, as we talked a little bit about the um, prior state so that there was, you know, a flawed relationship with people in their jobs in some ways. And maybe individuals hearing that think I'm blaming corporate or organizations for consuming these resources in a haphazard way. Well, it's their shared responsibility that individual, if they want to pursue purpose, they have to know themselves well enough to know what fills their cup so that they can self-advocate. So there's that piece of it. And then leaders have to have a curiosity about the people they lead and try to see who that individual is and what that person's strength and innate abilities are. Because in some instances, that individual maybe wasn't aware of them. And good leaders help those individuals to discover the best within themselves. So I think that's another piece of it. And then, of course, organizations have to allow people the space and the grace to do this type of thinking. So if the organization is like Blitzkrieg and it's constantly focusing on results and productivity, they're moving so fast and things are so chaotic that the individual just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Like they get so busy um, that that busyness prevents them from actually being present and 
doing this type of work on themselves. So I think you built a nice little case that, hey, like what this is no finger pointing. This is just let's acknowledge that self-discovery is important and you have to spend time and energy on you if you want to be a person that is um, experiencing joy in whatever you do. So I thank you for kind of walking us through that. And there are so many powerful and helpful self-discovery tools that exist out there. You talked about Myers-Briggs, you've mentioned the Colby, there's the Enneagram, you know, there's a lot. DISC, gosh, there's so many that exist out there. There's one that's like a color type. Uh, Even I've even heard people use like the Harry Potter uh, houses kind of thing. Like what, whatever speaks to you, whatever you can relate to that helps you discover what makes you happy and joyous, do it, lean into it and walk that journey in you as an individual, you will get to know who you are. And through that, you'll be able to put yourself in positions to where you're doing what you are meant to be doing. Absolutely. I think, you know, the interesting thing is there is so much value in the assessment tools. I am, I'm a big believer in that. Um, I think one of the issues is that we keep improving so much that's in um, the personality and affective part of the mind. So, um, you know, if you think about the cognitive, the affective, and then the instinctive, the thinking, the feeling, and the doing, you know, there are certainly cognitive assessment um, tools out there um, that are relevant for IQ, for reasoning, um, certainly some leadership aspects, and then so much, the vast majority of assessment tools and development has been focused on the affective and personality for so long. Um, And again, those are all really helpful. We keep getting incremental improvements. But in some ways, when I look at it, I feel like Colby found me. Um, And and I want to talk a little bit about the distinction between the affective and the instinctive part of the mind, the feeling and the doing. So the the affective is is the purpose or is the, everything in the heart space, the emotion. It's our emotional intelligence. It's empathy, um, self-awareness. All of those things um, are preferences. And those descriptors, descriptors are all very helpful. Um, when I learned Colby, we did it as part of our innovation um, leadership team at Gatorade. And, um, you know, those insights are helpful, but then, um, we moved on. I actually left Gatorade within a year of doing that. Didn't really work with the tool. I came back and got certified in it in 2013 when I was looking for some kind of insights. And I was almost, I was so ready to pull the trigger on a Jungian based, um, assessment personality profile tool. And, um, it, it just uh, turned the corner and Colby was doing a certification program in Chicago in two weeks. And the way I'm hardwired, I naturally jumped on that. And it was such an important thing because um, it's totally different. It's in a different realm. It's a different perspective. And what it's looking at is how people invest their time and energy 
to solve problems. And it's instinctive. It's hardwired from birth where my strengths finder and my Myers-Briggs have changed since I was in the corporate world. My Colby, I took it twice um, 12 years apart. Colby doesn't like for people to do that, but um, I was part of a coaching program that was using it. And I was like, I'm just going to kind of see none of my numbers changed by more than a single digit. And it's really looking at how we spend our time and energy. What I think is so relevant to innovation are a couple of things. Number one, um, it looks at how we, and it also is so related to that, um, this disruption and uncertainty we're facing today. But one of the aspects that Colby measures is how we respond to risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. And when you look at VUCA, which is an important part of leadership today, the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, we can look at a bell curve of how people take action when they're facing risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. Do we, do they lean in? Do they naturally improvise in the face of that and just take action to move things forward? Or are they stabilizers? Are they hardwired to say, hey, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's minimize the risk in this situation to the degree that we can. And if they minimize risk and stabilize when facing uncertainty, that means they spend their time and energy somewhere else. And maybe that's in gathering data and being analytical, or maybe it's in the planning and creating a process, right? So, you know, we can look at data-driven insights um, into how people respond. So I think the descriptors of the affective are very helpful, but we can actually quantify how people spend their time and energy. And that gives us the relational to how do I relate to you? Um, and how do I relate to other people on my team? And that's such a source of conflict. Um, it's such a source of blind spots when we're wired similarly um, and, and can also cause inertia on a team. So I, I love that we can look at that risk and uncertainty, but also is really interesting when I started um, Innovation Savvy in 06, I wanted a simplified version of innovation um, just to help. I want innovation to be relevant and accessible to people, not, you know, that, you know, elite task force team that goes off and does their work in a skunk's work environment and, you know, they're special in some way. Like innovation, when we make it understandable to everybody, then we get everybody's contributions. We get their creative spirit engaged in doing it. Um, and so we can also look, so the way I simplified the model was to say we analyze and ideate on the front end of innovation. And we plan and we build on the back end of innovation. And when I, about a, I don't know, six months to a year working with Colby, um, I recognize that the four action modes that Colby is measuring directly relate to those stages of innovation. And the further work really shows how the divergence and convergence that design thinking helps us understand. Colby is actually measuring that 
as well. So um, we have we have a different perspective to measure um, people's strengths. We have no an, an, an excuse me. We have an understanding of how they deal with risk and uncertainty, how they take action when they're facing it. Um, and I think the other change that we really need to make, you know, emotional intelligence <laughs> kind of took the heart out of emotions, if you think about it. Um, it goes from awareness of what our emotions are to how we manage them. Both of those are cognitive. They're intellectual um, dealing with what's in our hearts. And in, instead, I think when it comes to emotions and when it comes to our strengths, we need to have a deeper dive into the heart piece. So we not want to become aware of what our strengths are, but then we need to pause before we go, okay, what's my strategy for success coming out of this, right? We need to pause in the heart space and we need to say, ah, let me truly accept what my strengths are because they might be different than what I've expected myself to be or others have expected me to be. I, it's amazing how often people say, well, how could this possibly be a strength? And I'm like, let me show you, right? They like, they don't even see how who they are can be a strength and a contribution, especially to innovation. And so pausing in that acceptance and a deep appreciation of, wow, this is really a strength. How can I like um, release the judgments that I've had and lean in to who I am. And then we move back into the intellect, into the cognitive, and we say, okay, I call it the fourth A is alignment. What's needed in the situation here? My quick start um, improvisation ideation is it always helpful when we're building the plan. Um, Because I'm creating five new ideas, but we have to move forward on an idea today. The time for ideas may be past, right? So I want to align with where are we in the creative process? What's needed for innovation? And what strengths need to be leaned into now? So that is a cognitive awareness of that. And then that takes us to that fifth A of agency, which says, knowing who I am, knowing what's needed, how can I best um, utilize my strengths? And I think that of that is empowered action. So it has to circle, it has to be all three parts of the mind of the cognitive, affective, and instinctive. Um, who am I? How am I hardwired instinctively? Do I really appreciate and understand what I bring and what others might bring? And then do I have a cognitive understanding of the situation at hand and what's needed? And then how can we then be that symphony orchestra leaning in where it's appropriate and inviting others to lean in where that's what's needed in the process? Back to the part of improvement being a team sport is it's it gone are the days where we can rely on heroics or one individual's ability to create success or troubleshoot or sustain 
you know, through harder work, we're at the point where um, automation is going to take some of these processes that required manual task, maybe, you know, not any uh, exhaustive thinking, but, um, you know, a human did it nonetheless. And as those things ramp up, you know, the, we're going to move away from people simply, you know, performing work functions to um, being asked to think and contribute ideas. And I think that's really going to help organizations and industry just as a whole start to innovate is the onset of automation. Not only is the door open for innovation been widened right now because of COVID, but it's also been widened beforehand because of um, artificial intelligence or predictive analytics or automation. The role of people in the industry is changing from, you know, um, people who are productive and laboring to now people who are thinking. And within industry, there's probably always going to be the need for people to labor, but hopefully through some of these onsets of the automation and whatnot, we create more space for people to, to do more thinking and connecting and relating. And I think that's going to be really exciting to watch to see these individuals realize their strengths and to participate in different ways and to contribute in different ways. And I think it's going to be something that creates a lot of joy and fulfillment for people in the jobs that they have. Now, the concern there is that, you know, an investment has to happen. Like you'd said, these elements of self-discovery and this journey needs to be embarked on. These people have to learn how, what their strengths are in order to use them and to value them. Right. So you gotta, you have some, um, level of comfort with who you are yourself and see how your strengths are important and know what they are and know why they're important. And I think by having everyone have an awareness of how they can contribute kind of creates this platform where everyone is offering input and we get diversity of ideas and we get diversity of skills and personalities. So you'd kind of, one of the things I remember from your presentation is you worked with leadership teams who were diverse in age and diverse in, um, you know, their, their backgrounds and their race and even their sexual orientation. So you're like, yes, there's diversity of that, but then there's diversity of personality as well. And when you had that team that looked diverse, could complete this exercise, they saw that their response to risk was not very diverse at all. And that to you was a, a risk they needed to be aware of. So I think, you know, tools like this allows people to realize their strengths and to bring these strengths to the table. So now that we can have that diversity in personality and how people perceive and interact with the world. And I think what we thought it was innovative now is going to be like um, child's play compared to the innovation we're capable of achieving in the future. I think you're absolutely right. And as you were talking, the word on my mind was creativity. You know, that's what we really want to unleash in people um, is what is their particular way of being creative, of innovating. And it's not the same for everybody. It really is um, different. And you're right. The I was working with a leadership team who was 
leading technology innovation. And yet 100% of this 10 person leadership team initiates a creative problem solving process through a deep dive analytical approach, look at history. And they had nobody um, like me or like you, because you and I are slightly different here. I'm going to, I'm going to help like kind of turn that corner and synthesize information. You'd um, Tom, you're just going to simplify. You want to go to the bottom line of things, right? They didn't have, they had total blind spots in a big way. And then on top of that, they had um, seven out of 10 leaders were resistant to change from an instinctive perspective. It doesn't mean that personality wise, they were, you know, wanting to be resistant to change. It just means that literally they were hardwired um, to to look at what at what could go wrong and to um, to try and stabilize to keep things the way they had been. And when it comes to innovation and change. Teams that lead that way are going to move more slowly. They're not going to be able to respond to the market needs. Um, and they're not really, they're, they, they're hiring one another and working together because it's easier to work together when we're alike. But it's what I call the paradox of strengths, right? Those similar strengths makes it really easy to work together, but we can have inertia. It's the, um, it's the differing strengths that can cause, you know, tension or the potential for conflict. But when we can use that tension in a productive, constructive, dynamic way, that's where we can really drive innovation together. Thank you for kind of sharing that example that I had seen in your presentation. And that's where, like, my interest really peaked because of that potential blind spot, it was amplified because all in your story you were sharing, all of the people that were on that leadership team had the same exact blind spot. So it wasn't a blind spot that was covered by everyone else on the team. It was a gaping wide hole that could potentially suck the entire organization in because no one could see it. And I think having a tool like this, that's it. go ahead. Well, and it's so funny. You, that's exactly right. Like you can't, in some ways you can't see it because you don't know what you're looking for. We, it's like, we feel it. We know it like we, that we, like this person's just so much harder for me to collaborate with than this person. And yet when we put this lens on it and understand that, that, you know, I think of it as the, I call it the innovation matrix. The upper left is analyze and ideate and upper right is ideate. Lower left is plan, lower right is build. So from a creative problem solving or innovation perspective, we move through that in sequence. But the interesting thing about Colby and what I understood about working with it is every person initiates in one of those four actions, analyze, ideate, plan, or build. And what we 
what we need from a diversity perspective is we need some, it's so ideal to have somebody who initiates in each one of those problem solving modes. Um, and, but we also need to move through um, the creative process to gather information, but then we have to distill it and simplify it and move forward. Um, and we have to, we have to have those ideas um, that are both brainstormed in this divergent space. Um, but if you don't have anybody who's like a freeform thinker and is just like improvising their way um, to taking action, then you're, you're, ability to innovate is going to be limited. I'm not sure I answered your question there. I think that is something that it's pretty cool that this, this quadrant. So you, you talked about innovation in four distinct phases and then in any one of those phases, according to this um, quadrant, people choose to participate in that phase in one of these four ways. And that's pretty dynamic. And I think it. we could take now, talk a little bit about you and me, and I'll just kind of uh, talk about how I participate in change. So um, in that initiation phase, you know, that the, so I have a background in finance. So like business case is ingrained in me, but I found that as you try to build a case for change and all the data that you're collecting, is one costly and exhaustive to get your hands on every piece of information that might exist in order to demonstrate the need for change and to build the case for change. So for me, my tendency is to say, yes, that is a valuable activity to have to a point, but beyond a certain point, there is a diminishing return, right? Because it's costly to create these business cases and to collect all this data and eventually the data doesn't lead to any additional learning. So we need to take what's available and, you know, see that it's important to get it from a variety of sources and synthesize the information to get the key themes out of it. And then to, you know, go forward from there versus I know and have worked with other people in that startup phase of it, that they take the opposite stance that they're, want they find more comfort in excessive amounts of data and would spend endless resources to get it so you know being on that person's team there was conflict between that individual and I and neither of us were really right it was about what worked best for the situation we were in and how could we collaborate in order to achieve that overall objective so I hope like maybe since we have your type and my type of, we just share like one or two stories of how people interact with change and say, this is what's at play here. So I, I would love to unpack what the example you just gave. Let's, and, and I know as you and I, we walked through and we talked about the idea of this episode. One of the things we wanted to be careful of was protecting the proprietariness of the tool um, out of respect to the author and the founder of it. So as we, nerd out about this, I ask our audience to be respectful that there's certain things and pieces that we'll touch on, but not go deep on because of the proprietary aspects of this tool. So I just want to put that out there before we get in. Cause if someone's like, you know, there was gaps in that, well, we had to do that 
out of respect to the author of the Colby tool. So let's yeah. nerd out with that said. There's our dis- <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there's our <laughs> So uh, thank you, Tom. When when I heard you talking about that, you said the business case, right? And and you said ingrained. And when I hear you say ingrained, what I know is that's what you were taught um, in your um, in your career, right? That a business case, and so to me, that's cognitive, right? Like that is an analytical approach. It's a tool that it that supports your work, right? And then, so that's the cognitive part of the mind. Mm -hmm. Then when you talked about your collaborator, you guys had differing approaches where he was the deep dive analytical, um, just instinctively, my guess is, um, he felt the need to like get all of the information. And that's happened so long. Like you guys very likely were in opposite ends of that bell curve where when somebody initiates in that analysis or what Colby calls fact finding, then they are in the 20% of the population. They spend more time and energy, more of their time and energy in gathering and sharing information than the rest of the population. You, as I learned this morning, you're in the other end of the tail. You are in the 20% of the population that doesn't spend much time there at all. And in fact, it's the last place you go when you're solving a problem is to data. So you have these two people who were in these opposite tails and nobody in that mid-range to kind of be a bridge or a translator. And that is the exact kind of conflict that so often happens when people are working together. Now, one of the things that can happen, and it can certainly happen, happen a lot more quickly if you have the understanding and the tools to do it, is to allow that person to do the deep dive data gathering, right? To take the time and energy separate from you, right? So you can be off doing some of the ideation and other things, but let that person do the data gathering. What you want to, what you naturally do is bullet point it. Mm-hmm. Somebody can give you a whole report, then you may not even want to read the whole thing, right? But what you're going to do is you're going to distill it and say, here's the three things that matter. And this person like um, might feel like you are losing some of the specificity and the nuance, but you're also, it, it, I call them tree people and forest people that your collaborator was a tree person who got wanted to gather all the details on the tree and the soil conditions and the geology and the geography and all of this. And you're like, it's a forest. It's in this location. The implications are this, right? Um, And what we need, what's ideal is to have that bridge or translator in the middle who can help turn that corner to say, okay, we went through the divergence phase to gather the information. We now need to spend some time letting bubble up what's really important to synthesize, to, you know, to um, make sense of the information that was gathered. But then we need to converge 
on what's really important. And that is where, you know, design thinking takes us through divergence and convergence. What I think they miss in their language, which Sam Kaner introduced us to, is that emergence. So if you think about innovation and design thinking, that early stage does require data gathering. Are we solving the right problem? Do we have the understanding of both our customers uh, and the marketplace and what's going on? Um, when we're a purpose-driven organization, we also have an understanding of what matters to our people and to our organization. And that intersection gets really powerful. Okay. But, this is, we're going to peel back the next layer of this analytical piece of the equation, right? So same two parties, me and this other individual, when it comes to collecting this information, I have a greater curiosity about the qualitative data and they have a more um, more preference towards the quantitative. So voice of the customer, storytelling, empathy, um, trying to get, information from the spoken word or the stories or the experiences that exist is where I felt more comfortable and natural going out and doing deep dive in interviews and hearing stories and identifying those key themes. In some ways, we were on polar opposites of that spectrum too, where I perceived that they were over-investing in the quantitative and they perceived I was over-investing in the qualitative and yet there was no middle ground to say both of these data points qualitative and quantitative can work together so yeah I just find it really interesting these scales is a great way to start to think about how people work together and you need the tails but you also need people in the middle it thankfully we has a team there were middle people um, that existed. Otherwise, we would have just torn ourselves apart. Um, yes. And let me observe on what you just shared there. I think that qualitative versus quantitative and how you described you're wanting to connect with people and hear their stories. You care, you, your empathy, right? <clears throat> that is in more of the affective part of the mind the heart space, the emotion, what you care about. Colby's not measuring that. Um, that's more measured by a Myers-Briggs. Like if you think about the poll in Myers-Briggs of thinking to feeling, mm-hmm. right? And you have that um, feeling driver versus the thinking, right? And so you were seeing both of those. And that's where when we don't understand these complexities, about humans, we we don't know how to build a team. Like that empathy that you brought was essential in that discovering the problem, solving for the right problem. And it does require the qualitative, the quantitative. It requires both the analytical thinking marketplace, but it also requires that human-centered empathy um, for people. So um, I just want to make that distinction between what um, Colby measures and what Colby, um, what other tools might measure. Awesome. I think that is a great way to talk about that. I'm not any one thing and not any one tool is going to help me totally understand how I function. And I just thought it was interesting that 
in that case with that same party, we had different perspectives on thinking and feeling. And I wanted to up and I, I'm having a lot of fun unpacking me. Ooh, what else? <laughs> I want I want to unpack something else about you as you just said that. So the way, um, and I certainly don't have that person's full uh, analysis, but it really seems like that your collaborator initiated cr- creative problem solving, spent a lot of their time and energy in that analysis fact finder, yes. where you initiate the creative problem solving process is in that ideation. Yep. It's an improvising. It's a fo- it's a focus on the future. It's on possibilities. It's on um, what can we do? Let's just go out and try something. Let's be willing to experiment. You are hardwired, innately drawn. You are in the far tail of um, the twenty percent of people who initiate creative problem solving through ideating through improvising right through just taking action to see what will happen and that was that first one of the gaps so you have um so it is often that where we initiate creative problem solving that can um can make the most obvious differences for how we solve problems. Um, what I mentioned about you a few minutes ago was that the last place you go is to data. And so I want to unpack that for a minute. So you and, I, you and I are very similar in that initiating creative problem solving through improvising and ideating, right? And we what tends to go with that is the ad-libbing, right? Like talking through solutions and a focus on the future and the possibilities. So for you and I to be in a conversation, it's just easy and it flows. Now, where we do things differently is after you ideate, you then go to the back end of innovation and say, what's the plan? How are we going to get from where we are to where we need to be? You don't, you don't spend a ton of time there, relatively speaking. Um, but because there's a lot of people who spend way more time in planning than you do. But that's where you go next. You're like, what's the plan? How are we going to get there? And then you build it. You look for or build those tangible solutions. And only then do you go back to the data. So if you were working completely on your own, you're just like essential data um, in the overall scheme, because you're going to go from ideate to plan to build back to analyze. (laughs) Um, So that is the process I do follow was let's get a I'm going to use some business jargon. So to the improvement nerds, sorry, not sorry. So I love to create the minimal viable product or service. Let's, you know, scratch it out, get our doodle boards, come up with something, prototype it, get it out to the individuals who would actually use it and seek their feedback has a quick cycle of learning to then iterate on the next enhancement that needs to occur to take that idea a bit further. And that I have discovered is unique to me. Like I thought everyone thought 
this way. And I had to appreciate that this way is my way and doesn't mean it's the right way. And others are going to participate in this in their way. And that's going to, you know, prevent me from stepping off in the blind spots because my tendency is to go really, really fast and just kind of trust my gut. And I'm an idealist, right? I don't think about what's going to go wrong. That's not my natural think pattern. Well, uh, the realist, yet again, two scales, opposite side of each other, is more cautious and can totally see me driving to the cliff and is doing everything possible to keep my haphazard movement and acting with urgency from blowing things up. And I think it's just this, it's so interesting that there's the dynamics in these um, polar opposite ends working together to sharpen one another. Because otherwise we would, it would be analysis paralysis and we would never do anything. The other side is we'd be going so fast and introducing so much change that we would burn up every single person involved because it was just constant going and that's not sustainable either. That's absolutely right. And it's funny when um, I presented and you saw in 2018, um, I didn't even have one of the models that uh, I work with now. Um, <clears throat> I, we each individually are hardwired on a spectrum from chaos to order. And I think of it as the Audi rings. So on one end, there's like destructive chaos, right? It's like the high failure rates of, of startups are so often because they are in such a chaos mode that they never, oftentimes they don't really solve for the right problem. <laughs> and secondly, it's often because they don't get enough structure at the right timing in their organization to build some stability and get off the ground. Now, big companies on the other hand, are off in the other end of the far ring that is stifling control. They've got so many systems and structures that are rigid and have to be followed that they don't allow enough creativity. Now, those two rings in the middle are where I think we can actually map human chaos and order. So, and I think they're both really positives. So I think of it as creative chaos and constructive order. And so, yes, you are a person who starts with the idea and the improvising. You have just enough plan, but do you want to make it tangible, right? And only then do you go back and get feedback on it, right? Like you're not going to go out and do a bunch of market research before you create something, right? Right. Um, but what is needed is, so you're, you have a lot of your energy on the create through possibility with just the minimum plan, right? But, and that's super helpful for the front end of innovation. But let's say that you were building something that required some consistency, and some repeatability and 
we even look at the Starbucks system, right? Like part of what people love there is the consistent product that they get and you can order it with just the right amount of sweetness or cream or water in your Americano, right? Like it's the precision without the people who really do a deep dive in planning um, and building Um, And those are two separate things, like planning how we're going to make things happen step by step by step. How does that cup of coffee get made? And then the building of it to make sure that we've got quality um, ingredients and quality tools and equipment. And we are building that um, quality product. That's all back end of innovation stuff. And so um, again, like we can look at how people move through that chaos in order and know what's needed on the front end is we need a lot of that creative chaos on the front end, but we need a lot of that constructive order on the back end to make sure that we have the, the quality, the systems that are um, going to support our product delivery, but then we also need people like you and I who have enough of that flexibility in our planning to look at a system and say, is that too rigid? Can we take a shortcut here? Do we really need to do all 18 steps or can we come in and do one, seven, 13, go back and pick up number two and be done, right? So there, it really is this dynamic process of creativity that does involve our personality and our emotional intelligence and our empathy and our cognitive, everything that we know and learn and our skills and our tools. But then there's this whole huge instinctive piece of how we move in chaos and order um, that is so much a part of where our creative strength comes from but it's also where our potential for conflict can come from. And when we understand that, that overlays with our that innovation matrix and how we move through the divergence, emergence, and convergence in each of those stages, then we can make sure that we have the right job, right? Like when I was, I was never happier in a corporate job than when I was leading innovation for Gatorade. I was in the right job. It was a fit for me. I don't take on things that aren't a fit for me. I put people around me and my cross-functional leaders were fabulous. I had cross-functional leaders who led in the other three quadrants where I don't lead. Right. So I knew when to lean into their strengths. And there was just this dynamic tension that moved us through those phases in a really constructive way, along with the processes that we had. And certainly there was, you know, conflict built out of both personality, because we have big personalities and really strong willed, strong minded people. Um, but we had the curiosity that you've mentioned so many times in this call, which is so true. That's such an essential ingredient for innovation. Um, but we had that a willingness to um, understand. I knew that my engineers were super creative in terms of how something could be produced. And I wanted to produce new creative packaging. And in order to do that, I needed their strengths both their 
cognitive strengths, their knowledge, skills, and experience of the manufacturing, but I also needed that they were hardwired so differently than me. I did need somebody who could look at what could go wrong on the manufacturing line. What could go wrong? Like you said, for you, it's a blind spot for you and I both. It's just not how we're hardwired. We might anticipate things, but we're anticipating future possibilities. When people who are wired differently than us look at the future, they look at what could go wrong. And so those are the people oftentimes in our brainstorming sessions who we, if they're not managing their strengths effectively, they're coming in with their convergence on ideas too soon before an idea has a chance to be, emerge and get some legs underneath it. But if we know how to use their strength, we go to them proactively and we say, hey, you know what? Can you help me um, almost do kind of like a war game, right? What could go wrong here? And they instinctively know it. And how do people feel when you come in and tap into their strengths and say, help me figure out what can go wrong? They, instead of being an Eeyore <laughs> who's raining on the parade, they are valued and invited to contribute in a way that it is better. It, it makes them feel that's where that joy and fulfillment comes from because they're solving problems in their way and it gets to a greater innovation and better, more sustainable results in the market. I, I, everything you just said reminds me of a book that I had read called The Multiplier. And what it really boils down to is leaders who manage and employ people in ways that play to that person's strength when you survey that employee or that direct report and you ask them how effective they feel in their in their job they will say well if i'm doing work i enjoy or that i'm aligns to my strengths i feel like i can give 120% and when individuals when there's a mismatch between their work they're asked to do and the work they're most capable to do They'll often times say, I feel like I'm underutilized and I'm only giving you about 60% what I'm really capable of doing. So what they were saying is leaders who go around and look for ways to maximize the people they lead and put them in positions to where that person is playing to their strengths, you can do a lot more with a lot less. And to me, that just was a really good book to talk about how self-discovery and curiosity about what you are most capable of doing and, and taking those capabilities and applying them as regularly as possible. I know not every day, day in and day out, you're going to be playing to your strengths. Sometimes you're going to be doing the mundane and the things you don't really enjoy, but hopefully overall, the large majority of what you're doing day in and day out does play to your strengths. And like you said, if that's true, you're, it's going to fill your cup. And I think good things will happen as a result. That's absolutely true. And when you know what your strengths are, we, we can actually help 
create strategies for when you have to work outside of your strengths, right? What are some things that you can do, right? Like you can't always like delegate work or trade work. Like sometimes there are things that you just have to do. So there are strategies, whether it's the time of day that you do it or whether it's the reward that you give yourself after you do it. There's just, there's so many ways to support that. And I think, you know, if, if I'm a leader, I want to know who my people are so that not only do I know how to help that team be successful, but I, because you and I are both the intuitive feeler idealists, we want to make, we care about how those people feel. So we want to, we want to coach them in a way that helps them feel seen. Like that was what Sue Wellington did for me at Gatorade. She made me feel seen for my strengths and then created a job to do that. We have, again, the data-driven human-centered insights that allow us to align people with the roles that they're in to not only build, but to design teams for that productivity and agility, we can, we can um, really be that orchestra conductor that says, here's where we're at. I need you to lean into your deep dive fact finder, Tom's previous collaborator, right? If they ask you or I to do that, and people can misunderstand, like they might think we're not as smart or, you know, it, it's a different kind of intelligence. It's we, we do not, we are not wired to do that deep dive data gathering. Our genius is in distilling it and simplifying and making it, um, it's, it's the insights, right? And I think that's the work that you and I both do is data is information. But when we distill it into the insights and how we can apply it, then it's power. And action. Yes. Empowered action. Yes. I have thoroughly enjoyed this episode. And, you know, I I think we could have probably filled two or three, three hour episodes because this is such uh, an elaborate and broad reaching topic and I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your passion and nerding out with me and giving us some concrete examples of how understanding how people innovate and interact with that environment is something that needs to be studied and understood. And here's the benefit to it. And I think you created a beautiful business case for it and a human case for it. And as people listen to this episode and want to embark on this journey and learn more about you and the Colby assessment, how do they go about doing that? Well, thank you. It's been, I loved every minute of this conversation, as you can um, probably tell. I, I think we need to transform how we innovate. And that is putting people, it's elevating people to a higher level to, to elevating them to the strategy technology process. It's not an either, or it's a yes. And, and so you can find me on LinkedIn really easily. Um, Lori Lovins. Um, and my website is innovation savvy.com. And I'm always open to people reaching out to me through LinkedIn or, um, by uh, email or phone that all that contact information, uh, resides online. 
thank you so much for the amazing work you're doing, the storytelling that you do, and the just joy that you have for taking this passion and using it to serve others. It's, it's completely uplifting. I had so much fun on this episode and I hope that the passion you have was easy for everyone listening to it to detect. And I, you know, as a result of that, I hope they learned something new. You piqued their interest and that they're motivated to um, whether it's this tool of self-discovery or any of the other ones, just get started, right? Just, it's a journey. And some of them are going to work for you and other ones are not, but it's never one thing, but it's oftentimes the, how they interact with one another that really allow us to best understand ourselves. And you, know, you just got to get started and you need, that's, you may need to guide you. Right. And that's, you do that. And uh, there's lots of people out there who are willing to get, act as a guide. Absolutely. I would say that um, what you really want to look at is what what are you trying to solve for? Um, Because there's a different tool for a different job. And if you know what you're trying to accomplish, then that's going to point you to what the right tool is for you to use. Laurie, I don't, that's just speaks to who you are as a person, because I think some consulting services would say like, no, like mine is the best. Well, no, no. Like let's, if, if you come to me and we have a conversation and we discover that this isn't going to work for you, you just said like, I'm going to tell you, Hey, I'm, I'm Lori and I'd love to be with you on this journey. And I'd love to partner with your organization. But if you're trying to solve a problem that this tool can't, can't help you with, like, I, I can't help you, but I can refer you hopefully to someone who can or something that can. So, you know, I think that's just, speaks volumes of who you are to say like this this is capable of doing these things and if I can help you I'm willing to but if I can't I'm going to be honest with you so that you don't spend time energy and resources that's something in something that doesn't help you solve the problem you're trying to solve so thank you for for that thank you Tom thanks for letting me nerd out with you today it's been a blast I've loved every second of it thank you